This episode of Repod is brought to you by SEO Orb, BuzzShot, Recon, and Patreon supporters like you. Welcome to the Reality Escape Pod, your lifeline when you need a getaway from the real world. I'm David Spira, alongside my co-host, PG Law. Together, we're exploring immersive gaming from all angles, and we'll be joined by guests who really know their stuff. Today's guest is the king of Smash, Ken Hong, professional gamer and Survivor Gabon castaway. Welcome, Ken. Hey, how's it going? Ken is an old buddy of mine. He was on Survivor. You were, what, two seasons after my first season? Yeah, I was. And allegedly, I inspired Ken to apply for Survivor. Yeah, that's true. <laughs> and, and we met through gaming. We, we became friends through gaming. Yeah, yeah. Ken and I used to play StarCraft, but like custom games. Yeah, user maps. We used to play for hours until four in the morning. What are user maps? So there's StarCraft and WarCraft, and then they let you make your own maps, like for people who aren't too competitive. It's like more like fun games. So there's like tower defense, all sorts of games in the user maps that you can play, that people create their own type of games. Like, so they're like scenarios made within the game. So they're designed around a style of play. Yeah. So it's basically using all the characters and the character abilities from the game. But you have the ability to create your own games within that. Today's episode is going to be a little bit different. The Escape Room world has had a few different tournaments emerging over the years with varying levels of success and drama. We're going to be exploring some possible futures for competitive escape gaming by looking at it through the lens of Super Smash Bros. Melee. Now, I know this may sound nuts, but this 2D fighting game and escape games both have one key thing in common, and that is that neither were actually designed for competitive play. The communities themselves and the players have been figuring out how to turn these things into competitive games. Ken, let's start with the basics. Can you explain what Super Smash Brothers is? Okay, so Super Smash Brothers is a platform fighter game with all the Nintendo characters that come across in all the various games that Nintendo has made. And they put it all into one big giant brawl where you can play any character you want and you just fight it out. The core difference here between a traditional 2D fighter like Street Fighter Immortal Kombat, which is everyone starts with full life, the first person to get the other person down to zero loses. With Smash Brothers, the goal is to knock them off the stage itself. Yeah, you can't kill somebody on stage. You have to knock them off the stage for them to fall into the blast zone to die. It sounds like a survivor challenge that I won <laughs> in my season. <laughs> <laughs> In Survivor China, we had a challenge where it was three versus three on these platforms and you won by knocking people into the water. <laughs> oh, yeah, I remember that. Yeah. I also think like for people who don't know this scene, Ken was world champion, like literally number one player yeah, in the yeah. entire world. Five years straight. And he dominated the scene. I, I always forget how famous you are because you're just my buddy Ken from Survivor. But like anybody who's played Smash instantly knows if I'm like, oh, I'm friends with a guy that was world champion for a few years. They're like, it's Ken Hall. You're so famous in this gaming world. <laughs> yeah, the, here's the thing. Like when Smash first started, it wasn't competitive at all. It was just a party game. It just evolves to the point where we made it competitive. It just that really depends uh, on what type of players are playing the game and how far they want to take it. This started off as a party game. It's a four-player game at its core, and it's really meant, I think, as the designer intended to be 
played by people casually to have fun playing as your favorite Nintendo character, knocking around your friends in, in a fairly lighthearted take on a fighting game. The community started to shape what this game could be as a competitive fighter. Can you explain some of how that happened? There's a lot of glitches in the game, and a lot of people started exploiting this. And, and the, the designers and the person who made the game knew it, but they, they had to release the game so fast that they couldn't really patch it because uh, they were on a time frame to release it. So they threw it out and people just liked what it had. And the game had a lot of competitive aspects to it. So there's another aspect of it's not like a, it's not like Street Fighter. Street Fighter has set combos where things will work all the time. If you jump in with Ryu, you can do like a high punch, like uppercut and Hadouken. And then a, a super Hadouken. Those are like the set standard combos in like a street fighter like a regular classic like fighting match but with with smash you can do whatever you think will work and it might work and it might not work depending on your also it depends on your opponent so, so it really depends what i'm hearing is there's all these idiosyncrasies in the way the game was designed and implemented that allowed players to become more advanced and start to explore these features as a way to play the game at higher and higher levels that were not immediately obvious when the game re was released. Exactly. There's so many things in Smash from like every character that has different movesets to items. There's so many things you can think about in Smash that makes it either a party game or a competitive game. You could play it as you choose. Obviously, the people who designed it wanted it to be a party game. It's like Mario Party. It's supposed to be a party game, but my family, we always took Mario Party very seriously and made it a competitively. Like, me and my siblings, we used to do, like, a Mario Party gauntlet and I put, like, money on the line and see who would win the most uh, Mario Party games. So it even reminds me of Survivor because Survivor didn't start off as this really intensive strategy game the way it is now. It started off as just a reality show where you threw a bunch of people on an island. There were some competitions and then they're voting. I don't think they intended it for it to necessarily be the strategically heavy game that it is. It was more about actual literal survival. Look at the title, Survivor. <laughs> yeah, I mean, right? it, it's more about Survivor. You, it, it's crazy because if you watch the first seasons of Survivor 2, it was more about surviving and they didn't have any type of strategy whatsoever. Until Richard Hatch came mm -hmm. in and basically exploited the system. So when you were saying that like people exploited a glitch in this game, that's exactly how Survivor emerged as this ultra-competitive strategic game was because one guy saw that he could exploit this whole voting system and create alliances and voting blocks. Yeah, pretty much. So, like, the game evolves. And even in, in Melee, it's, I don't know how long how old it is, maybe 20 years old or something like that. It's still evolving. The game is still evolving to a point where people are figuring out things, which is crazy. This brings up a couple of key points. First of all, this is a GameCube-era game. This is before game publishers could push patches through the internet and update the game. Yeah, it was online, and you had to play people through a CRT, too, because if you played anything else, like a CRT is a CRT TV, the big yeah. fat boxes. So this is a whole community that is still, to this day, hauling around big, heavy televisions to play their game. Exactly, because if you play it on a LCD screen or whatever, it'll lag. 
and it's just frustrating if there's lag because like every input matters so much that if there's a bit of lag then you'll notice it so my brother plays not smash but other video games and he always has to play with his sleeves rolled up and he told us it's because if the sleeves are down it restricts his movement just enough that he can tell it affects like how fast he can react to something which blows my mind but like even hearing this that you guys are hauling around these crt tvs because of that like little second of lag you guys are so dedicated there, there are tournaments that have been replayed because of lag it's but crazy. do you have to play with your sleeves rolled up some people do <laughs> i i think there's people who play differently and some people sometimes will play sitting at a weird angle or sitting like i know this guy who uses to go to every tournament and he would you know how you, when you were kids you would lay on your stomach and play games yeah that's how he would play but so he would sit on his stomach and play on a chair <laughs> so he like, puts, like Superman, like yeah, yeah, yeah. So he had he take two chairs and put one chair on the other chair in front, and he'd sit like that and play like that competitively. Yes, competitively. <laughs> I mean, people play in all sorts of style. We never force their vote. So, what's your ideal? Do you have to sit at home covered it with cats or something? No, I, I'm standard. I'm very standard. <laughs> One of the things that emerged for Melee as the competitive scene was starting to form was this rift between the East Coast and West Coast of the United States, which came with two things. One was a rivalry, and the second was a slightly different set of competitive rules. I'm curious to hear how that worked out. I started on the West Coast, and in the West Coast, when I came to the scene, they already had established tournaments, and this guy named Matt Deasy was running them at the time, and he would host like the biggest tournaments at the time. So when I got to the scene, he was like, these are the standard rules. These are the stages that we like, and these are the rules, and we have items on. When I used to play, I used to play like FD, which is a stage which is super flat. And no items, because for that was my like, home rule set when I used to play with my brother and my friends. What are items? Items are certain types of things in the game where from all sorts of games, like Star Fox. Here was like a Star Fox cannon. Like the flower from Super Mario Bros.? Yeah, yeah, yeah. That will drop randomly onto the map, and you can pick it up and either use it or throw it at people. Or like Pokeballs, like Pokemon. Those are one of the big influences of items where like it's just a Pokeball will appear on the map, and you can grab it, and you can throw it, and there's a random Pokemon inside. There could be a freaking legendary that could one-shot you. <laughs> There could be a Magikarp where it won't do anything. It'll just flop around. So those things. And the thing with items is it's so impacted by luck, right? You don't want too much of it to be dealt with luck. You want it to be whoever's a better player or whoever's more skill wins, right? So with items, it became more luck-based. The West Coast did that because they were afraid that people were going to camp. And camping is very strong in, in Smash Brothers. You're playing stationary in a way that is very defensive, it's yes. less dynamic, and it is narrowing the ways that a person can attack you. Uh, yeah, it added more randomnessity instead of like, skill. To put this into a different context, if you imagine a game of chess, and randomly over the course of a chess match, a button would appear on a particular spot, and the first person to move one of their pieces there would trigger something random. And that could range from nothing happening to a pawn randomly dying on the opponent's side to their queen randomly dying that's what we're talking about yeah or they can just lose the game right there and then yeah checkmate what was the east coast's take on items they would watch our tournaments youtube wasn't even a thing then so they would watch it through people uploading matches on the cubs and stuff they would just laugh at the west coast players because they're, they're, they're playing with items they're not even good because mm -hmm. they were so used to playing how i used to play make sure there's no 
bullshit happening in the match. They would watch the, the matches and talk shit. Obviously, the East Coast players back then loved to talk shit. And they're just saying, oh, you guys are not good at all because you guys play with items. What do you prefer? Um, I don't like items. I'm good with both. When I started playing in the West Coast, I had to adapt. So when there were tournaments with items, I had to know what every item did and when to stay away, when to grab it, how to use it. And so I had to adapt. And the character I use sucks with items. I use this character named Marth. So he already has a sword. So he uses his left hand to pick up items. His left hand is his dominant hand. So he picks up items really slow, and he's not very good with items compared to like other characters who pick up items like super fast. So the characters themselves have a lot of variance. Yeah, them. yeah. I didn't realize there was so much nuance even to each character. Yeah, every character is different. It's just like on Survivor PG. You come with a certain <laughs> skill set, right? <laughs> True. <laughs> what ended up becoming the established norms for the Smash Melee community? So basically, the East Coast players would go to the West Coast and get their ass kicked with items because they suck at <laughs> items. And then they'd go home and bitch about it. And then the West Coast players would go to the East Coast players for like tournaments. And I would still beat them with items on or off or whatever. So they already established the guy was the best. Because I would win tournaments with items or without items. Because one tournament, Matt Deasy, he played in a match. And some guy got super lucky. This guy named Eddie from Chicago, he got super lucky and he threw two Pokeballs and two legendaries came out. And Matt Deasy just from zero to death died. And he's and then afterwards, he's like, okay, screw this. No more items. I had to take to the point where the tournament organizer got destroyed by items and random luck. And it's someone that he for sure thought he was a lot better than. And he was lost to that person. And then he afterwards, he, he realized that items were bullshit. God, okay. I wish Survivor had done that when Russell Hans decided to just find a bunch of idols. It's basically like finding the double legendary, except they just kept adding more legendaries after that. Yeah, yeah, pretty much. We have items in Survivor, except they call them advantages. Yeah, yeah, advantages. In the escape room world, there's been this ongoing debate about what are the norms for even just casual play, let yeah, alone yeah. once you get into challenge. I'm actually pretty intrigued about the escape room things compared to Smash, because what are your items? To give you some examples, we don't necessarily have items, but you do have skill sets. Like you can't walk in with a screwdriver and start undoing stuff. But there are certain skills, there are certain ways to mess with probability that you could choose to employ. So one example of that is if you have a puzzle that resolves to four individual digits that go into a four-digit lock. If you solve the first three and someone else is still working on the fourth puzzle, is it acceptable to just spin that last disc, which now has a one in 10 chance and also might have just fallen open in your hand anyway, because there was a one in 10 chance that when you set the previous three digits, the lock was actually already set correctly. We call it disc spinning. And that's, at least in my opinion, has always been fair play. Some people disagree. Some people get really angry about it if you do it. I don't like it. Yeah. I, I think it's fair play. I, I figured like... You do whatever you can as fast as you can. And if it happens to unlock, it happens to unlock. You're not like really cheating. No, for me, there's a 10% chance once I put three digits in that the lock is just going to fall open in my hands anyway. Mm -hmm. And it's also super fast to twist it. The puzzle is the same as the previous three. Like my opinion has always been like... It's kind of like foosball, right? There's those people who spin like crazy and then they hope to make the goal. And there's people who 
don't like that. Yeah, I think the difference is in foosball, there's the people who just spin and smash everything every time. That's like the only thing they ever do. And then there are people who might do that with some intention in a particular point in the game. Mm-hmm. I think that to me is the difference. There's intentionality behind it. It's not just sitting there guessing the lock for the sake of it you know it's going to open. It's funny because I said I don't like it. And then I, I just realized I literally did this last night. <laughs> and I came out and the game master was like, that's the first time I've seen anybody solve that puzzle with only two of the puzzle pieces down. And she's like, and you knew immediately what to do with it. And I was like, I've done way too many. <laughs> yeah. But that's also one of those times where like, the skill that you have gives you this opportunity to do something that's genuinely fun for you as a player. It's a way for you to be expressive and engage with the game on your own terms. To me, that's not cheating, although it does get into the next norm, which is puzzle bypassing, which is when you can jump out of sequence of the expected flow of gameplay Mm -hmm. by applying your knowledge of puzzles of the technology in the room of game design oh like my team did when we played isolation exactly broke the entire order of the game (laughs) exactly well here's the thing about that though if you solve the puzzle in any way that's still fine is clearly a fan of gaming the system (laughs) there's always cheats and if if someone figures out a way to do it faster than other players then sure why not if you're not breaking any rules if you are basically exploiting a loophole I do think it's fair game. The question here becomes, when you're playing in a game that you paid for with your friends for pleasure, as long as everyone is on board with it and they're doing it knowingly, or they're doing it completely by accident, and that's a whole separate thing, that's one thing. The question starts to emerge when you enter into a competitive environment where we're still trying to establish what the competitive norms are. Is the game about solving all of the puzzles? If there are 10 puzzles in the game, is it about solving 10 out of 10 faster than the other team? Or is it about reaching the point where you finish the game? And if you bypass those puzzles, is that cool? Or is that something that's incomplete? These are norms that are not hashed out. That definitely depends on the parameters set up by the designers of the competition. What's what's the win condition? Is the win condition to get to this point in the game where you can press the button? And if you want to make sure that they have to solve every puzzle, then you bottleneck it there. You make it so that there's no way for them to bypass. That sounds like a design flaw if they're able to bypass it. Yes and no. There's still always the chance for luck. There's still always, even with if you have a four-digit lock, there's still a one in 10,000 chance you might randomly land that and open up a lock even by dumb luck. There are, there's always the opportunity for chaos. The question is, and this is this to me is why the items versus no items of the early melee days is such an interesting point of comparison, is that these things, they're all fair play. The Pokeball that lets loose a legendary that one-shots you is still technically fair play. It's part of the game. It's a mechanic programmed into it. It's something that is accessible to everybody, and the randomness in and of itself does, in a weird way, make it fair, even if it's not going to feel fair to the person on the receiving end. That was a deliberate choice that the competitive community decided to make, and that's what I'm seeing in the escape room community is a lot of basically items that we have not, as a community, gotten together and said This is the acceptable rule. This is what we want when we play casually. This is what we want when we play competitively. Yeah, and that's the thing too. The rule set is something determined based off time and 
also a lot of regions have to agree or disagree on things. That's how the rule set became in the melee community. It took some time to see what's truly broken and what's not. And we had also a lot of representatives from different regions decide, okay, is this stage fair? You know, at first we had a couple of stages that were more random than not, and they were moving stages. They were called Rainbow Cruise and Polka Floats. So then we ended up banning those two stages. It just felt like it was not a good stage for tournament play. And I think with the escape room, everything you guys are talking about, like you do things based off what do you think is right and what's wrong. There's a phenomenal video from a YouTuber who produces shorts about fighting games uh, called Corey Gaming. He has a video about adaptation of rules over time. Corey Gaming is amazing. But he talked about the evolution of the rules of basketball, where in the 40s, there was a player named George Mikan, who was six foot ten and the best basketball player to live up to that point. Bearing in mind, all the players were much shorter back then. His unbeatable strategy was to just stand under the basket and smack away any shot that anyone made. There was no goaltending rule. So he just slapped these balls away. I think it was the Pistons decided to come up with an unusual strategy, which was to just get an early lead, and then they played keep away for the entire rest of the game. There was no shot clock. It resulted in the lowest scoring and most boring NBA game in history with a score of 19 to 18. These things triggered the shot clock and the goaltending rule. These rules were not there in the beginning. They were added to make the game more competitive, to make it more interesting, to make it more fun to watch. That reminds me of a match in Melee too, because in Melee, one of my teammates, his name is Hungrybox. Every time you grabbed a ledge on Melee, you would get invincibility frames for like maybe two or three seconds. He would just grab. He would just kill somebody, and then just grab the ledge and just camp there the rest of the game, where he just keep on grabbing the ledge, get the visibility, and wait the time to run out. And some people would call that planking. He would just time people out after doing that, and people couldn't do anything about it. And it was just not entertaining for the people who were watching because you know, people want to see fast-paced melee, good combos. And he just kept on camping on the ledge and planking. And and then afterwards, like people decided to have a grabbing limit, so you can grab three times, and you have to get off the stage. And people try to exploit things that are so broken and, and when matches that way, but the community will find a way if it's competitive to, to try to stop that from happening. And it happened plenty of times. This episode is brought to you by SEO Orb. We would never recommend anybody on our podcast that we didn't believe in. And that's why David and I made sure we interviewed Piyush before we decided to accept him as a sponsor. And honestly, I don't feel like you could have a better cheerleader for your business. The sense I got from him is that he honestly loves this industry. He wants it to thrive and he truly wants to help you and your business succeed. I was really nervous about having an SEO person sponsor our podcast because I've met some really shady ones. Not going to sugarcoat that. When we spoke to him, within minutes, I was like, this guy gets it. And then the more I asked him, the more I realized he he was coming at this from the right place. If you guys are looking for a marketing guy, give him a call and just talk to him. If you just spend a little bit of time talking to him, you will see what he can do for you. You can learn more at seoorb.com. Details in the show notes. There are multiple versions of Super Smash Brothers, starting with the first one that was on Nintendo 64. But the competitive community has 
an unusual schism between Melee, the version for GameCube, and Brawl, the most recent version. Can you explain a little bit of the history there? Okay, so Melee was going very strong. And then, obviously, when a new game comes out, everybody's supposed to go to that new game. But when Brawl came out, the creators of like Smash Brothers, they decided to make it less like Melee. And they tried to make it more like a party game. With Melee, there were so many glitches and things that they forgot to take out. With Brawl, they're like, oh, let's do it right this time. So they added certain things that made the game less competitive. And this is what people didn't like. Here's the thing. In Melee, you can dash, right? You feel free when you're dashing. It's called dash dance. The movement's very good. And I can feel my character very easily to, to know where he's at. In Brawl, the, the developers decided to take that away and make us um, trip. So they didn't like us dashing. So in Brawl, they added this mechanic where if you try to dash, you trip. So every time a competitive player would try to play Brawl, they would try to dash and they would trip. And they'd be like, what is this? Like, why can't I dash? You know? And then they also took out something called L-Canceling and Melee, which they even had a 64. When you attack from the air to the ground, you can press the, the L button, which is the shield button, and it'll cut your lag in half or even no lag at all. So you can do things and link more moves together to combos and stuff called L-Canceling. So they took a lot of the fundamentals out that made Melee such a competitive game and had Brawl. Not to say that Brawl wasn't competitive. There was still a scene that played Brawl competitively, So which is why they divided the community in half. You're talking about all these minute, nuanced little things. You're talking milliseconds of lag. Are these glitches or these things that you're talking about, these exploits, are these things that were only exploited by super high-level competitive players? Or would your average player know how to make use of those exploits? If you're in the competitive scene, then you'll know how to get used to it. Because obviously it took someone to figure it out. The Japanese players were the first to figure it out, and they made a video about it. And then whoever saw the video, oh, how is that guy sliding? And then you would lab, they would call it lab. And you would play a lot of, of the game and try to figure out what works, what doesn't work. And I was one of the people who figured out a lot of the things too. Because when I started playing, I figured out like how to... Like my match against like Fox. Fox is a very fast-falling character. And I played Marth. And I figured out if I threw the Fox up in the air, I could re-grab them. And, I, and then people coined it chain-grabbing. It's another way to combo Fox. And I figured out how to do that. And people thought that was very broken. But then once I figured out how to chain-grab a Fox the Fox players would figure out how to get out of it later. And then I'd had to figure out a way how to grab the Fox again by pivoting. And it just would go on and on from there. All of these glitchy nuances really were the thing that made Melee a game that allowed a high-level competitor like yourself to be expressive and have a style that was uniquely yours. Exactly. With Brawl, they took that all away. And then people mm -hmm. who didn't like it in the beginning started playing Brawl. And in the escape room world, we have play styles as well that range from all sorts of different ways that people approach it to the types of challenges that they like to tackle versus letting their other teammates tackle the way that teams function as a unit. All of these things are born out of the variance and the freedom that the games offer you. Whereas if we were to switch to just like having a Sudoku challenge where everyone was solving Sudoku, it would be a very different style game. It would be stripping out the room for the new ones. I'm sure if you guys did like a escape room when you go in, instead of scrambling, okay, you do this, that, you guys would know exactly what you guys would do once you guys hit the escape room. You, you guys have the shot caller, then you would have the guy who's doing the lock puzzles, and 
whatever, right? For a well-oiled machine, everybody has their role. They have the thing they're good at. Part of being a good team player is recognizing what a puzzle is and then making sure it lands in the hands of the right person. But if you think about the shift from melee to brawl, this is narrowing the scope of the challenges that you can be exploring in a game and reducing the amount of variance, the amount of opportunity there is for people to really make use of their unique skill sets. Exactly. To give you a firm example, I'm really good at dexterity puzzles. I'm good at manually manipulating things. And I'm terrible at logic and a lot of the reasoning puzzles. My wife kills at that stuff. Stripping one out affects the way that I play as a player. It affects the way our team functions as a unit. It affects the balance of how all of this starts to function. What if escape rooms gave you a chance to bring in a specific item? To help with these puzzles, like you were talking about earlier with a screwdriver or like a notepad with a pen, do you think that would be more competitively done? Or Usually the rule of thumb with escape rooms is that everything you need to solve the game is within the game. Sometimes that means you're given pen and paper. Sometimes that means there's a calculator in the room. Sometimes it might mean you're finding a tool. I have literally found bolt cutters in a room and you had to use them to cut a lock. Or you'll be given a cell phone that has just a few apps on it, and one of those apps is a calculator, right? Usually, the goal from a design standpoint is to bake it all in. And the more you can bake it in organically so that these just feel like objects that belong in the room, the better. Thank you so much to one of the sponsors of this podcast, BuzzShot, who have created Telescape, a tool to either manage inventory for virtual escape games. You can actually use it to create an entire escape game from it. Virtual escape games used it just for that, for their game Wreck, Escape the VHS. This was really cool. It was like an 80s workout aerobic themed game and the entire game was played in telescape so there was no actual in real life room that you played it in he made this whole thing just from telescape and it was super fun i'm continually impressed with how many different ways you can use telescape to create games you can learn more at telescape.com details in the show notes I'd like to talk a little bit about the concept of a metagame. And we can talk about this as it exists in Smash, in Survivor, and in Escape Rooms. Can you explain the, the core idea of a metagame? I think the, how, how the game evolves in a way where if you do one thing, someone's going to do something else, and the game will just keep on evolving, right? Yeah, so it's basically just the result of where everyone is in the adaptation of the game at that point in time. Talking about Survivor, the metagame has evolved a lot over time. And again, it is very reactionary. So like in the early days of Survivor, the meta then was to vote off the weak people. You people would think, oh, like we want to keep our team strong for team challenges. But it's evolved, right? It's evolved. You voted off the weak, you voted off the annoying, and you voted off the people who weren't helpful. Uh huh. And then there was a shift when somebody realized we're just letting these big guys get all the way past the merge. And now they're a shoe in to win every single individual immunity. Yeah. So then people figured, you know what? We're not going to let these big guys even have a chance to make it to the merge. We're going to start voting them off pre-merge. So then that meta changed for a while when these big guys were getting targeted pre-merge. And then people started having to hide 
how strong they were. And rule changes can affect the meta. So if you take a look at the most recent bunch of seasons, the implementation of the fire at Final Four, it used to be that you had to be deadlocked as a tribe to go to fire. And now there's just automatically a fire making challenge. Tommy from Island of the Idols hid the fact that he was good at making fire, that he had practiced making fire. That meant he went on to Survivor and went out of his way to not make fire for his tribe to hide the fact that he was competitive in the fire making challenge on day 38. It just an inch to me is an interesting shift in the way that people play the game. There's a lot of strategies even within Survivor that have come up because of these metas. I, you know what? Like even it, it's affected even production because back in my first season of Survivor, when we go through medical checks and all these things before challenges, after challenges, et cetera, we used to do that as a group. Back in my first season of Survivor, the doctor would come over to us, the entire tribe as a group, just be like, does anybody need medical attention? Is anybody hurt? Whatever. And if you did, you, you, oh, I got a cut on my foot. Whatever. Can you look at it? On my second season, almost eight years later, people got taken individually to see the doctor. Production took a lot longer. They would take us one by one to go see the doctor. And it was taking so long. And I'm like, what gives? And it's because people were either faking stuff or they were hiding that they were hurt because they didn't want their team to know. And they wouldn't say anything in front of the doctor, in front of the whole group. This is when they started having to take people one by one back to the tent so then you could be honest and when you were alone with the doctor. Yeah, and I think the meta changes in certain categories too. Like, for example, Russell Hans, he found all these idols. And then afterwards, every other season, you have people finding idols without any clues. It shifts depending on certain players of how they played, but then people will take that and try to use it as a strategy and adapt to that and it'll keep on going. Until production will change certain things where you can't find idols without clues, and then people will stop searching for idols. And the rules and the way that they're crafted can encourage or discourage. In more modern fighting games, the developer can influence the meta by adding powers, subtracting powers, adjusting the way the mechanics of the game work, and that will cascade down to the way people play. We're seeing some changes in the escape room scene too, where, and I know David doesn't like the term like Gen 1, Gen 2 rooms, but there there has definitely been a shift from a lot of rooms that use literal combination locks. And then with technology, we're getting more towards really highly immersive experiences. One of the biggest changes that I've seen from the early days of escape rooms is the early escape room meta was there were two driving factors that affected a lot of how we played in the olden days of seven years ago. One was that the designers frequently had no idea what they were doing. And so some of these games were really hard because there would be puzzles that made no sense. They just functionally did not work, which was reasonably common back then. Fairly rare now. The other thing was that the games were deliberately just a whole lot harder. It was commonly expected that the games would have somewhere between a 20 and a 30% win rate. And that's shifted as the financial incentive for companies has been people like to win. People are more likely to be repeat customers if they win. People also like stories. They like tech. They like big moments. So the shift that we've seen has been that the games have gotten a lot easier. At the same time, they've become more immersive. They've become more adventurous. They've become more engaging on a level that isn't just purely a team of people throwing their wits at a series of puzzles. And so 
some of the skill sets that we needed in the early days, a lot of hyper organization that we needed to make sure that we had everyone working as optimally as possible. We don't need to do that in the same way that we used to. And also some of the wheel spinning stuff, some of the lock manipulation. I'm a reasonably talented lock picker. I've been picking locks for about 20 years. Combination locks, some of them I can feel when they're right or when they're wrong. Mm -hmm. That used to be a really important skill in the rooms, just because it would allow for you to reject a bad path, especially when you didn't know if a puzzle was going to make sense. Nowadays, it's almost irrelevant. The last time I used it was when a lock broke in a game and we had to call the game master in and he was like, I can't get this open. And I was like, don't worry, I got it. And two seconds later, I had the thing open. I handed it to him. But yeah, the escape room meta, especially the dramatic shift was from those early days to the more present. And now we're just getting more immersive. It's more about the adventure of it all. So do you think the, the escape room meta has become like melee to brawl nowadays? Or do you think they're trying to maybe dumb it down? I think it's a very fair analogy. The games are on a base level. They are nowhere near as hard as they used to be. They're providing a lot more entertainment value. They're providing a lot more production value. If you are in it for the competitive nature of it, if you want to be matching your wits against hard puzzles, I don't really think escape rooms in most cases are the place for you. I think puzzle hunts are. There's a whole separate world of much more challenging puzzles. If you go all the way up to the hardest level, stuff like the MIT mystery hunt required teams of 60 people and half of them have PhDs and all sorts of random stuff. And it still takes a few days for the team to finish out all the puzzles. So yeah, I, I think that actually the shift from melee to brawl is actually a very accurate description. Last year, we had folks from 63 countries join in for Recon, the Reality Escape Convention. We are once again hosting Recon online for players and creators alike. If you're a player, check out the Play Pass for games that you can only play at Recon. And if you're in the industry or you want to be, make sure to get yourself a Pro Pass for special workshops. And if you're on a budget, our basic access ticket packs a ton of value and it's pay what you want. Yeah, that means you can attend for free. We are doing this because we want the entire global immersive gaming community to learn, connect and have fun at Recon. There will be talks, games, workshops, vendors and after parties. We can't wait to see you at Recon on August 22nd and 23rd. Learn more at realityescapecon.com. David, do you think if we were to have a competitive escape room scene, you think then does it make more sense to have? Wait, them what take do you mean? Place? If you were, is, it, is there a scene? Is said? there one? There have been a few different approaches and, and attempts at escape room competition over the years. The first ones were just competitive rooms, companies that have two copies of a room and they're designed to be played in a head-to-head -head speed match. Mm -hmm. And there've been a lot of different ways of doing that. Some of those rooms can actually affect each other in like a battle system of sorts. Lisa told a short story about that at the end of our final episode of season one. So there've been a lot of those in the early days, but they were few and far between really. Red Bull created the Red Bull Mind Gamers competitions. They've hosted two of those and it's been a few years since they've hosted one. But those came up with a couple of different approaches to trying to have teams representing their countries in a single place for a few days, and they were doing time trials against each other. 
During quarantine, we've had Heiner over in Germany has created the Ego Olympics, the escape game Olympics. And the Ego Olympics are a really cool idea. Everyone plays the same game at roughly the same time every week. He picks the game and everyone posts their time. But it's like a good example of where are the boundaries of the rules? What are the norms? I've only played in the Ego Olympics once because I play mostly as a reviewer. I don't think it's in my best interests or my review's best interests for me to be speeding through. I like to take my time. But we did play once and our team put up a uh, reasonable time of something like 44 minutes. We were two minutes off the podium and the team that won first place put up a time of 24 minutes. That was Team Squared, Sarah, Sharon, and the gang over in the UK. And they are brilliant puzzlers. But I was completely and utterly bewildered by that time because this game had a lot of video in it. And I didn't understand how they could be putting up a time that was literally half of the time we put up. There were definitely places where we could have sped up our performance, but I don't think we could have cut more than about four minutes off at most if we were playing optimally. So where was the other 20 minutes? It turns out Telescape has a means of skipping video that I didn't know about. I probably wouldn't have done anyway because I was still playing as a reviewer and I wanted to see the video, but that cut out half the game clock. Question is, what's the norm? What should it be? Are we playing with items or are we playing without items? It's a hard thing to say when the difference is like, our games are one time. With Smash, you pay for the game once, you can play it over and over. For us, we're paying the one time. So like, it is a different thing when it's competitive. But if I'm playing a room, I want to experience the whole thing fully, which in my mind, that doesn't necessarily lend itself to speed running. Exactly. And so for me, I didn't realize that this was even an option, let alone that it was a thing that was legal. I don't know that it would have changed the way I played at all, but it would have at least made me a little bit less confused about how we got blown out so badly when I knew we played well. The clock should absolutely stop when you're watching videos. But the game was not designed for competition. And the game was selected by Heiner to play, and he's picking a new game each week. And he's doing really amazing things for the escape room community, especially during quarantine, because Every time he picks a game, he's bringing a few thousand dollars worth of revenue to that company. And these companies badly need that money, especially this past year. So I'm not saying any of this to be harshly critical of Heiner, Ego Olympics, or Team Square. I think it's a really cool tactic. I didn't know it was there. I think competition will be more meaningful when we as a community decide what are the norms? What is and isn't allowed? And that takes a lot of time too, right? It does. Oh yeah, for it sure. Takes a lot of time. With with Melee, to get the rules that we had today, like, it took like at least 15 years to have a standardized rules. Now everybody's, okay, these are the rules and you just play with it because it's been tested through time. And basically like how many tournaments did it take for us to get, come to these finalized rules? Nowadays, like people don't even argue against it. Before it was like people were arguing almost every tournament, why this stage is on, why these things are on. And then now... No one argues anymore. These are the, the final rules. But that took at least like 15, 16, 17 years for it to be finalized. So I, I think with escape rooms, it still has a, a long way to go because it's just still pretty much brand new. In terms of tournaments, we've had a few over the years, and it's not a brand new concept, but each time is legitimately an experiment. Yeah, but it's, it's crazy too, because even with Melee and Smash Brothers, it took us 
a while for people to even acknowledge that we were a, a fighting game tournament thing. People were like, why are people playing Smash? Isn't that a party game? And people from the, the Street Fighter community would, would make fun of us because they were part of the fighting game community. And they would never allow Smash to be part of it because they're like, this is a party game. This isn't a fighting game. So then Smash just became its own thing. It just became its own, its own entity. Uh, and now we're just called Platform Fighter Game. And then other Platform Fighter Games started becoming a thing. So now there's other games that are similar to Smash. And then now they're categorized as a Platform Fighter Game instead of like a fighting game. You have a mind for strategy and how to exploit weaknesses in a game system. Going into Survivor, did you have ideas of how you wanted to exploit the system for the meta that it was in when you played? I did. And then... After I realized the people I was playing with, I just went down the drain. <laughs> Ken played on one of the least strategic Yeah, seasons. like I, I came on right after freaking Fans vs. Favorites. That season had so much strategy. And then I came out and I was like, dude, did these guys even watch Survivor? Do they even know what it is? <laughs> no one wanted to strategize. No one knew what was going on. And they just, it, was, it came back to like old school like Survivor, honestly. It's so frustrating. It is. And then if I were to do any move, in, in, like strategic-wise, for our team or whatever, and people would be like, oh, no, that's not right, man. That's not right. You shouldn't <laughs> do that. That's that's not right. And I was just like, okay, what do you want to do then? Oh, I don't know, man. Like, just we'll just play the game like how it's supposed to be played. So I was like, what? <laughs> what? Are you serious? How is this game supposed to be played? See, here's the thing. I think you are really good at separating your emotions from the strategy, right? Because you are so competitive. You will do whatever it takes. Exactly. As long as it was in the realm of the rules. You're not dumping out the rice and setting fire to the shelter. Yeah, yeah. I wouldn't sabotage my team to win. I will also say one thing that from watching your career, and I also think that even within the context of Survivor, I think this was also really well pronounced in your play. You don't get bothered by your bad performances. Good as you are at the things that you do, when you aren't performing at your best, you still manage to find a way to bounce back and you don't internalize when you when you have your setbacks. And as somebody who is really competitive and really into competitive games, I respect that to the core. Yeah, I, I try to find the win cons, obviously. And if you're playing a game, like I play to win. This is why Ken and I get along so well. I, I do think a large part of it is that you and I are so used to dealing with these competitive environments. Say even with our siblings growing up, it is very natural for us to like an hour later be like, hey, do you want to go watch a movie? And we're all good again. This is how my mentality is like in any type of game that I play. Just just keep it inside the game. Yeah. <laughs> and that's, that should be like a Survivor. The thing about Survivor is just like things got personal and... Especially on my season. Things Got Personal is probably the best and shortest way you can sum up Survivor Gabon. <laughs> Ken, can you tell us what comes next for you? Are there any projects you're working on? Anything you want to talk about? No, I've just been living life. My girlfriend got to med school just now, so she's going to be moving to Utah. Just working at home and streaming here and there. Do you do coaching? I do coaching, yeah. I do Smash coaching and Pokemon Go coaching for PvP. Okay, so if people are interested in having you coach them how can they contact you just hit me up on twitter at liquid ken yeah yeah and i will have that in the show notes if you're looking for the link as well i'm a really good coach a lot of people pass their skill they wouldn't believe how good they were until i pointed out certain things that they were doing wrong and then they're like oh wow i, I didn't know this about myself i coached uh kentucky nick this is nick who was the winner of survivor david versus goliath yeah 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 he asked me for some coaching and I, I hooked him up. He's a pretty good like PvPer now from Pokemon Go. Ken, thank you so much for joining us. 
The Reality Escape Pod is brought to you by RoomEscapeArtist.com, your home for well-researched, rational, and reasonably humorous escape room and immersive gaming content and events. If you're enjoying this podcast, an easy and free way to help support us is dropping a five-star review on Apple Podcasts and consider sharing it with a friend or two who you think might enjoy it. If you want to do more, consider joining our Patreon community. We have an active Discord and offer all sorts of bonus content, including companion episodes with each episode of this podcast. The guests frequently join us for the bonus episodes. You can find our Patreon at patreon.com slash roomescapeartist. No matter how you choose to support us, we appreciate you. Listening to the podcast supports the podcast. So thanks for that. The Reality Escape Pod is produced by Lisa Spira and edited by Steve Ewing of Stand Inside Media. That was a great conversation, Ken. I'll bring you to an escape room. <laughs>